We're looking this morning at the subject of communion with God. And if you'll note in your bulletin outline, first union, then communion. Now this is kind of a look back at last week's, but just a synopsis here a bit. It complements what we learned last week, that there can be no valid subjective experience of God until, unless we are first objectively attached to Christ through repentance and faith. If you do not know Jesus Christ, how can you say that you have experienced Him? Or God, for that matter, because He is God, God's Son. I mean, how would you know if who you experienced was God, or maybe the devil, or maybe an angel, or maybe a demon, to name some other supernatural entities? In His Word, God defines Himself. In other words, He gives us copious amounts of information, so much so that to be ignorant of God, listen to me, to be ignorant of God is a willful ignorance. Especially in our world, where everybody and his brother can own a copy of this book. And if you can't afford a copy of this book, this church will buy you a copy of this book. You can go into any motel, hotel in this country and you'll find a Gideon presentation of this book in the side bed stand. You can go into Borders. You can go into Dalton. You can go into any bookstore. You can go into Walmart. You can go into Kmart, Myers, anyone, and go to their book rack and you can buy a copy of this book. So when people say, I don't know God, how can I know God? Guess who's at fault? It's a willful ignorance that leaves the seeker without excuse for not finding God. Can I say it this way? God isn't hiding. He's here. He's near. He's ready for any serious student to discover, but you have to come to God through His prescribed means. What's His prescribed means? Faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. Romans 10, verse 17. Notice that it's not just any message that brings us into fellowship with God, but rather the message which consists of the Word of Christ. Forget the preacher preaching if he isn't giving you the message of the book. Forget your own religious readings or assumptions if they are not the words of Christ, the teachings of Christ. Let me put it this way. Jesus is the gateway to God. His own testimony was this. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, verse 6. Paul confirmed Jesus' words saying, God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. There's his goal. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. And that's the man, 
Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2, verse 4 and 5. Jesus is going to give you the knowledge of the truth that you need to experience the forgiveness and the fellowship with God. And when you sin, He steps in as the arbitrator. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, Therefore He is able to save completely those that come to God through Him. Because He always lives to intercede, to step in place for them. He always lives. We serve a risen Savior. We were singing resurrection hymns this morning in the opening of our service. God has placed His Son, Jesus, directly, directly in the pathway to glory. Now you can come to Him in faith, renouncing your self-goodness. Or you can come to Him as Peter taught. Jesus can become a stumble stone to you, a rock of offense that trips you up and causes you to fall. 1 Peter 2, verse 8. Now just as a person has to be objectively fastened to Jesus before they can truly experience God, so union with Jesus precedes communion with God. And by communion I mean fellowship as a walk and talk together kind of thing. And that's what we're talking about this morning. People are all into the experience. They want to experience God. I'm for that. I want you to experience God. But you must come to God through His Son. He's not going to circumlocute or bypass His precious beloved Son. And if you try to get to God some other way, read John 10, Jesus says, then you're a thief and a robber. They don't come through the door. They come through broken windows or holes in the roof or whatever. And we all know what happens to thieves and robbers. But Jesus said, I'm the door. And if you come through me, you will find, you'll be able to enter into the sheepfold and go in and out and find wonderful pasture. Now secondly, prayer is fellowship with God. Prayer is fellowship with God. But not all prayer is heard by God. Did you know that? And it's not because God is deaf but it's because he doesn't listen to just anyone and everyone who prays. And that's probably a shocker to some people this morning. You mean he doesn't listen to me when I pray? Well, it depends. Well, what's it depend on? Well, we'll look. In the meditation reading this morning, Moses said to Israel, listen to this, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to Him? Ooh, that's a good question. That's another one. And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws that I'm setting before you today? Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below, and there is no other 
Deuteronomy 4, verse 7 and following. Now notice what Moses is speaking here to the nation Israel. And though this is obviously provincial, it's his people, observe as well the exclusivity of what he is saying. When he asks this question, what other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us when we pray? The implication is that the other nations do not enjoy this communal fellowship with their gods, nor is Jehovah, who is God alone, verse 39 says there's no other, neither is He open to the prayers of the idolaters who populate the other nations. You say, well, where do you get that? Well, firstly, it's an implication of the text, but beyond implication, the Bible has a lot to say about this objectively. For example, Solomon writes, The Lord is far from the wicked, but He hears the prayers of the righteous. Well, does that sound like that? that's just Moses giving his opinion? No. Or again, though the Lord is on high, He looks upon the lowly, but the proud He knows from afar. Psalm 138, verse 6. Or again, those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. Psalm 73, verse 27. Observe how the biblical writers describe God in reference to people who do not obey Him. They note that God is far from them. Far, what's that? It's at a distance, not close to. There's a barrier against intimacy, against relational communion. God doesn't listen to their prayers, nor communicate His will. He's not close. He's far. He's not near. He's distant. He does not communicate. He stops up His ears. Whoa. What's the barrier? Let me read it for you from God's own word. The Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. Proverbs 15, verse 8. The blind man in John 9 expressed what ought to be the obvious. And here's what he said. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. John 9, verse 3. Peter writes, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord, that's eyes and ears, is against those who do evil. What's the barrier? S-I-N. That's the barrier. People's rebellion to God. Could anything be more clear that a person, in order to gain a hearing before God, has to be in a right relationship with Him. Do you really think that you can denigrate God, mock Him, ignore His commands, make fun of His people, disregard His preachers, insult His holy character and will, and then, and then, expect Him to listen to your prayer in your hour of crisis? How absurd is that? 
That's what people think. David gave this testimony. He says, come and listen, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Now this is a believer talking here. But God has surely listened. and He's heard my voice in prayer. Psalm 66, verse 16 through 19. When the nation Israel began to deprive widows and oppress the poor, you know that they still proceeded to make their daily offerings to God. But he responded. Here's the way God responded. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Isaiah 1, verse 15. Prayer is fellowship with God, but hey, what? Listen to me, Christians, too. You're into willful sin and so forth, and then you're going to pray. And you're going to ask God to intervene in your life and this, 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 and this. He says, I won't listen. Go ahead and pray. Offer many prayers. Now this strikes some people as being rather strange. i got to admit. They think of God as one whose job it is to listen to and answer prayer. I mean, how, how dare it be said that God will not listen? Oh, even worse, how dare he say it himself? Which he did. And I'm reading those texts. Well, I want you to think of prayer as a portal into the presence of God the great king of the universe. It's the portal through which you're going to go. If you were to attempt an audience with a president or a monarch of a country, you would expect to have some inside connection to gain access because presidents and kings and the like do not have the time nor the inclination to grant an audience to everyone who might request one. Well, I want you to think a little bit deeper. Suppose you were videotaped in the town square carrying a placard and protesting, Down with the president! He's a cheat! He's a liar! He's no friend of the working class! And it was videotaped. Do you think you would get an audience with the president if he viewed the tape? Think a bit deeper. Suppose you were a person known to have thrown a bomb at the president's motorcade as it passed by, or you sent him a harmful powder in the mail. But now you are requesting, maybe even demanding, that he, he hear your grievance against the IRS because they're garnishing your wages for back taxes and you have little or no money left to live on. Let me ask, would the president grant you a hearing? more than likely he would send the U.S. Marshals to arrest you for a crime. You say, well, what's your point? The point is this. Prayer is the portal to God. 
It's a privilege, not a right. Further, in prayer, we are communicating with God, which includes both listening and speaking. A hearing, then, with God is based upon relationship. If you're hostile to God and His people, if you denigrate His character, if you ignore His commands, the portal will be closed to you, communication will cease, God will hold you at arm's length, you will be at the far end of His favor where bad things happen to people as God judges them. It's always amazing to me how people can think that they can denigrate God and spit on Him, criticize, nag at His people, criticize them, all those things. And then when they're in their trouble, all of a sudden they, they got holy. All of a sudden they got religion. Now they're going to pray because whatever's come into their life is more than they can handle themselves and so they see need and they go to God in prayer and they expect they, this is the thing that bothers me they expect God to listen and to intervene how more assuring to learn the Lord has heard my cry for mercy the Lord accepts my prayer Psalm 6 verse 9 this poor man called, and the Lord heard me. He saved me out of all my troubles. Psalm 34, verse 6. Or I love the Lord, for He heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy, because He turned His ear to me. I will call on Him as long as I live. Psalm 116, verse 1 and 2. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit, and you heard my plea. Do not close your ears to my cry. For relief. Lamentation 3, verse 55 and 56. The Apostle John put it this way, Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from Him anything we ask because we obey His commands and do what pleases Him. 1 John 3, verse 21 and 22. This is the privilege, brethren, of relationship. It's the privilege of relationship. The prince, the princess of the realm does not have to make an appointment to speak to the king. Like Esther of old, you can enter the king's court assured of his love, convinced that he will acknowledge you as his own and grant your petition. But you've got to be related to the king. And so I'm saying that the, God doesn't hear the prayers of the wicked, doesn't hear the prayers of unbelievers. It's a family matter. Fellowship and prayer is a family matter, and you're not family if you're an unbeliever. But I will say this. There is one prayer, one prayer of the wicked, that God does hear and does answer, and here it is. It's the prayer of penitence and faith. Did we not read Psalm 6 verse 9? This poor man called and the Lord heard him. He saved him. 
out of all of his troubles. Or again, listen to God's own declaration. This is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry, for then the spirit of man would grow faint before me, the breath of man that I've created. I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him and hid my face in anger. Yet he kept on in his willful ways. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will guide him and restore comfort to him, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace, peace to those who are far and near, saith the Lord, and I will heal them. Isaiah 57, verse 15 through 19. What's he saying? God is saying that he hears the prayers of the contrite. Contrite, what's that? It's a Hebrew word, here, and it means to those that are humbled. It's really a, a humbling term. It means to be crushed to powder. That's the Hebrew word. He hears the prayers of those whose self-image and self-dependence and self-assertiveness is crushed to powder. It doesn't exist anymore. And so when they cry out to God, they're crying out not in defiance, but in utter abject humility. But if you remain proud, if you remain arrogant, resistant, know-it-all, defiant, just five verses after Isaiah tells us that God will lift his anger and heal the contrite of heart. He says this, There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Isaiah 57, verse 21. There you have it. You want God to hear your prayer? If you're an unbeliever, you come to him with a contrite, with a crushed spirit. Say, all right, Lord, I've been doing it my way. All these years, I haven't had any time for you and your word, and I'm not sure that I even have the faith to believe in you. And I love my sin. I love me doing what me likes. I don't want to do what you like. But I'm getting nowhere. I'm crushed. And I see that my sin is a great affrontery to you. And if I'm ever going to meet you, if I'm ever going to know you, if I'm ever going to enter into fellowship with you, God, it's up to you to heal me, to forgive me. He'll hear that prayer. But you go before God as an unbeliever and you start laying down your demands, forget it. You're not family. He ain't listening. You're, on the, you're out there in the far country. You're out there in wicked land. But if you're a prince or a princess, you can come to the king with anything. Our third point, fellowship is a daily walk with a daily talk with God. A daily walk with a daily talk. 
I mean that in terms of ongoing. My prayer time usually begins early in the morning, 5 to 5.30 in the morning. Say, oh, I didn't know you'd get up that early. Well, it's not because I want to get up that early. I wake up automatically, and try as I may, I can't go back to sleep. Right, George? My mind starts thinking of all the things that I have to do and all that. And so I say to myself, this is a great time to pray. So I'm going to start praying now, 5 in the morning. You begin to pray for God's people. You have in your bulletin today a prayer list that George has graciously shared with us. You can personalize it to suit your family and your needs. But I think it's a good template to get you to think about a systematic way to pray. Not five in the morning. I am not going to turn on the light to read a list. But later I can refresh myself in all those areas of prayer that comprise my personal and church life. It's a tool, brethren. It's a means to an end. It's not the end itself. Personalize it. Put in things you want. Take out things you don't. But get organized so that you're covering the needs of your life and your church. Morning prayer is a good way to begin the day with God, but it is only a start. Many other things will arise in the day of an unsuspected nature that calls for you to pray. They won't be on your prayer list because you had no knowledge that they were going to arise during the day. And this is why David said of God, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are my God and my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love, for they are from of old. Psalm 25, verse 4 through 6. And David is asking God to be his teacher and his guide because God is his hope all day long. He knows the day will have some surprises, but that doesn't concern him so long as God is there to save him. The Lord my Savior is my hope all day long. In the New Testament, Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica and he said, Be joyful always. Note the next phrase. Pray continually. Give thanks to in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 19. We read that. Pray continually? I mean, is he for real? Who can do that? Well, Paul is talking about prayer or talk as expressive of the relationship that we have with God. In any relationship, there has to be talk. If you don't talk, the relationship is going to die. This has happened in many, many times in marriage. It's one of the first things to go when relationships begin to deteriorate. I'm not speaking to her. Well, uh, I'm not speaking to him. And if that keeps up, You won't have anybody to speak to because the relationship will be destroyed and broken. Pray continually? What does that mean? Well, Paul is talking about prayer as fellowship with God. He is referring to the atmosphere of prayer each of us should have and must have when we're walking with God. 
We are so dependent on God. Last week we listened as Jesus said, Part from me you can do nothing. So we are so dependent on God that as the day unfolds before us, we keep short accounts with God. We need to do that. We don't wait till night prayers to pray. We don't wait till morning prayers to pray in order to resolve issues. And prayer in this way becomes, can I say it, is as natural as breathing. Do you talk with God continually about your day-to-day routine? Within context, this is not petition praying. It is not necessarily requesting anything. Paul lists a triad here. Look look at it. Be joyful always. That's one thing. Pray continually. That's the second thing. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's the third thing. A person can and will do this who understands that it is God and not themselves who is orchestrating the events of his or her life throughout the day, regardless of what your day planner says. To pray continually, one has to be continually aware that God is right there in the drive to work. He is right there when you're receiving the doctor's report about your test that you had last week. He's right there at that exam for which you studied very hard and yet will demand God-given recall and calm resolve in order for you to do well on the test. And there's something else here. Our daily walk and talk with God is calculated to help us enjoy God. Notice he starts out in the triad, be joyful always, then he says pray continually. Be joyful always. Give thanks in all circumstances. What's he saying? He's saying, see if you can find God in those circumstances. He's there, but you need to look for him. Any bad things happening in your life that are a struggle for you? You were just minding your own business and suddenly the rug was pulled out from under you and down you went, boom, financial reversal, physical trauma, an abusive situation, a death in the family. And you're wondering why that happened. Worse, you're blaming God for what happened, even though the Bible makes it clear that God is not associated with moral evil. Dear friends, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. Anyone who does what is good is from God, and anyone who does what is evil has not seen God. 3 John verse 11. Or again, We know that we are children of God and that the world lies under the control of the evil one. 1 John 5, verse 19. Or James puts it this way. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. James 1, verse 13. So let's clear that right away. 
When bad things occur, we as believers must look beyond our personal preferences and emotions and desires and evaluations and see that God's glory is all that matters. Now we might ask the question, how can God get glory from allowing a devil-inspired, wicked person to hurt me or ruin me financially or reputation-wise or whatever? Let me give you two answers. Number one, how you handle the abuse can mean all the difference in the outcome. Scripture says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if, here's one of those what-if situations. What if you should suffer for what is right? Even if that occurs, Peter says, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear and do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. 1 Peter 3, verse 12 and following. Do you know that Christ has brought that into your life? God brings bad things into your life so that you can bring glory to His name and majesty when you rise above the evil and commit yourself to God's keeping. Now, you will hurt. You will cry. But in keeping the faith and maintaining your love for God, that bond of fellowship is not broken, but what? It is strengthened and the evil one loses again. Think of all the bad things that have happened to God's people down through the ages. Men tortured for their faith. Baptists drowned in the Danube River by Pado baptists You Baptists like immersion? We'll show you immersion. And they would take them out in boats and tie their hands behind their back and drown them for their faith. Godly women raped. Men and women burned at the stake. Children snatched away from their parents by the authorities. Death camps, starvation, imprisonment, on and on it goes. Read about it in Hebrews 11. Verse 38 says, The world was not worthy of them. These were all commended for their faith. Yeah, but they all died too, and they all suffered those things, didn't they? But they were commended for their faith. They entrusted their lives to God by faith to do with them whatever would bring Him glory and confound the enemy. And here we are 2,000 years later and we're still Christians and still following the faith of our fathers. Founded in many ways upon the blood of the martyrs who stood for the faith. That's the first answer. Bad things come your way for the glory of God. And if you can view that and not think, oh, this is personal. Why me, God? Why don't you think, why not me, God? The second answer is this. Bad things happen to God's people in order to build a case of righteous judgment against God's enemies and yours. Paul wrote to the Roman believers, 
Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room, leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Romans 12, verse 19. To the church of Thessalonica, he wrote, Among God's churches we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecution and trials that you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you, give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power on the day, on the day that He comes to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believe our testimony to you. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 4 through 10. Now we do not think about this much, but I think we need to. All the evil in the world, all of the evil in the world is either carried out against God, His person, His laws, His standards of truth and righteousness, or, or against His people you and me, for daring to believe God and to strive to live lives that are pleasing to Him. No one will get away with the evil that they have done against God and His people. Leave room for God's justice. He is allowing people, Paul says, to store up wrath against themselves for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed, Romans 2, verse 5. The bad things that happen to you are part of the rap sheet which will indict and seal the fate of all evildoers. It justifies God's judgment. Our daily walk with God is an occasion for us to learn to enjoy God and to be thankful in all circumstances, to let nothing interfere with our loyalty to God, our love of God, and our faithfulness. Job could say it this way, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Job 13, verse 15. Wow. Paul put it this way, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, I am convinced, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, verse 38 and 39. And if you can begin to live life and walk with Christ, even when the bad things come into your life, on the basis of those things, it will give you peace of heart. Now finally, look at communication or fellowship with God and understand that it is a two-way street. We talked about that in the adult class with regard to married couples this morning. 
need to talk to one another, but we also need to be good listeners, and we were referring to that this morning. But number one, we're to delight in God, delight in God. Unfortunately, our prayer communication with God isn't much different at times than the people of the world. Unbelievers pray when they are in trouble. Guess what? We often pray when we are in trouble. People become users of God. We want His help for our jobs, our marriages, our schooling, our family, and all other kinds of problems. And many of these are very legitimate concerns. But God is more than the first aid doctor in the sky. He's more than Mr. Fixit. We can learn to delight in God, not for what He does for us, but for who and what He is in His own person. David said, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, verse 4. Start there. Start with delighting in Him. Or again, send forth your light and your truth let them guide me. Let them bring me into your holy mountain, to the places where you dwell. And then will I go to the altar of God, to God my joy and my delight. I will praise you with the harp, O oh my God. O oh God, why are you so downcast, O oh my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God. For I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Psalm 43, verse 3 through 5. Wow, listen to the way that praise shames us, doesn't it? No, he's, he's, he's praying, but He says, I'm praying to God, my joy and my delight. One of the occasions for delight in God is that He has given us the truth. Again, the psalmist says, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your words. Psalm 119, verse 16. Your statues are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 24. Paul says it this way. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. Romans 7, verse 22. Any of this ringing a bell with you? Think of the character traits of God, his goodness, his kindness, his watch care over us, his forgiving nature, his truthfulness, his fidelity to his promises, his gentleness, his holiness. Do you ever think about the fact how great it is that God's not an evil God? If you wed omnipotence, all power, with evil, none of us would survive. But we have all power with that which is good. Think about his sacrificial love. If we just take time in our fellowship, in our relationship with God to meditate on him, not ourselves, we will begin to delight in God for his own sake and not for what he can do for us as a needy people. We're trying to work on that on corporate prayer on Wednesday nights. Sometimes we're successful and sometimes not. We're trying to have our prayer corporately praise God, magnify God, reflect upon God and who and what He is, rather than, Lord, gimme, 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 gimme. It's very hard to pray that way. 
because we're so self-centered. Then secondly, in this communication, we're to give back to God. And that really sounds strange, doesn't it? Give back to God. In any solid relationship, there is both give and take. We are good at taking, but how are we doing on giving to God? Now, here's the way we reason. God has everything. He owns everything. What could I possibly give to Him that would not be redundant or superfluous? That's the way we think. Let me list six ways, five for believers, one for unbelievers, that you can give to God. Number one, you can give a hunger to be filled with the satisfaction of Christ. You can hunger for Him. David talks about panting after God like a deer looking for a stream in the meadow. Where's that stream? Where, where can I get refreshed? Bernard of Clairvaux wrote this hymn. It's in our hymnal. We taste thee, oh, thou living bread, and long to feast upon thee still. We drink of thee, the fountainhead, and thirst our souls from thee to fill. Our restless spirits yearn for thee, where'er our changeful lot is cast. Glad when thy gracious smile we see, and blessed when our faith can hold thee fast. What's he expressing? He's expressing point one. He has this hunger. For Christ. Got a missionary letter from Blake working in Kenya. One of the things he brings out about the Kenyan people that he's working with and so on is their hunger to know the gospel and to know Christ. In a land where Muslims dominate and where it's very dangerous to be Christian, but when they hear the truth, they just, oh man, they come out. They walk for hours to get to church, and then they stay there for hours at church, and then they walk home hours to go home. Why? They're starving to know Christ, to know God through Christ. Point two. We can give to God faithfulness when everything seems dark. Not faithfulness when things are going well. Anybody can do that. Faithfulness when things are dark. In the parable of the master and the servants, when the master went away and left the vineyard, you know there was a rebellion. The servants got angry. They fought among themselves. There was death. The master came back at a time when they didn't Expect him. Caught many off guard, but not everyone was caught off guard. Jesus said, His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Matthew 25, verse 23. 
God is happy, if we can say it that way, when you render to him faithfulness, when you don't cave in when the dark times come. Number three, you can be a man or a woman of the truth. Everything else is lies in our world. I'm so sick of lies. It's in our politics. It's in our government. It's in our business dealings. It's everywhere. Lies, lies. Solomon writes this. Kings take pleasure in honest lips. They value a man who speaks the truth. Proverbs 16, verse 13. I can just see Solomon with all of his advisors running an empire and saying, oh, God, just give me some men with truth on their lips. I'm so tired of the political correctness. I'm so tired of the wheeling and dealing. Everyone's looking out for themselves. Again, we read from Paul, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, we set forth the truth plainly. We commend ourselves to every man's conscience. Examine us in the sight of God. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 2. And God says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord, vindication from God as Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Psalm 24, verse 3 through 6. God loves truth. He's the God of truth. So if you can be a man or woman of truth, that's something you can give to God that no one else does. Number four, you can love Christ as the bridegroom that he is. Did you know that you're wed to Christ? You are. Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. John 14, verse 23. Or again, this is love for God, to obey His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. 1 John 5, verse 3. I was thinking of Jacob working all those years for Rachel. The scripture says, so Jacob served Laban seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love. Genesis 29, verse 20. You ever tell Jesus that you love him? You ever function in relationship, in fellowship with Christ because you love him? He's the bridegroom. You're the bride. Number five. You can worship Christ in praise and in song. We read in the scripture, and they sang a new song, 
You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10. Or the psalmist says, Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the saints. Psalm 149, verse 1. Do you know when we sing our hymns on Sunday morning, that's part of worship. That's part of this fellowship that we're talking about. Godly men have sat down. I wouldn't say that they're inspired. I don't believe inspiration with regard to hymns. But godly men have sat down and in their hymnology, whether red book or brown book, and have you noticed that the hymns have you noticed the dates of the hymns? We're seeing stuff out of what? 16th, 17th century, 18th century. This book has a few contemporary hymns in it and so on. But why is it? It's because the old guys, the old folk as we call them, understood that God is to be worshipped in all aspects of our life. And we're to sing His praises because they find, found it in the Scriptures. And so they take the things of the, of the Word of God and they set them to music because they expect that God is pleased as He hears the sound of His people singing and praising Him. It isn't a question of whether you can carry a tune. It isn't a question of whether you can sing on key or off key. It isn't a question if you've had professional training. It isn't a question if you can read music or not. We're to sing praises to the Lord and to rejoice in Him. The world sings about smut and evil things and drugs and all that kind of stuff. Ever notice the rock stars, how they dress? Black eyes, black shirts. Skull bones, death, dying, black lips. Everything from the occult world. Now, not all of them, a good many of them. Guess what? They're singing to their prince. They are. They're singing to their prince. It's the prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness. Are we singing to our prince? Son of righteousness, light, joy. Lastly, if you're an unbeliever, what can you give to God? Let me ask Jesus to answer that question, which he does in Mark 1, verse 15. These are Jesus' words. The time has come, Jesus said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. And believe the good news. Mark 1 verse 15. Today is your time. Come in faith today if you sense God prodding. The time has come, says Jesus. Your time is today. Our Lord, we ask your blessing upon your word. Stir us, O God. And bring us into fellowship with you. This has been your great desire. I remember reading in the Genesis account. After the creation of Adam and Eve, your first 
the first couple, first human beings that ever lived. And what does it say? It says that you, in the cool of the day, in the cool of the garden, would come and walk and talk in fellowship with Adam and Eve. That's why we were created, to enjoy God forever. And that's all been ruined by our sin. But in the gospel, you're calling us back. You're saying, come back. Wayward son, come back. Wayward daughter, come back. Repent, believe. Come back to where you should be in right relationship with your God and your Creator. Come to my son. He'll make things well. He'll bring healing to your sinful heart. For us as Christians, Lord, forgive us. As we, we've, we're glad to have fellowship with anybody and everybody except you. Forgive us for forgetting you. Forgetting, forgive us for not delighting in you. Forgive us for not giving back to you. Just being takers, 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 but not givers. It's been a really one-sided relationship in many ways. And our sin has made it so. Please, please, O oh Lord, do a work in our hearts today. May it start with me. Amen. Our